Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. So when we meet together, this is giving God glory. You being here on a Sunday is a vote for God's glory being manifested throughout the West Tamar. You being here on a Sunday is saying to the people around here, something's going on to the glory of God. The New Testament of the Bible contains a number of letters written by the Apostle Paul to believers in various cities. Philippians was written to the church in Philippi, Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica and so on. The church that was most written to and most written about was the church at Ephesus. It wasn't a perfect church by any means, but there is much we can learn from its strengths as well as the warnings it received as we operate in our own churches today. Being a candlestick church is Dr. Corbett's message for tonight and it's jam-packed with valuable insight for the individual believer and the church as a whole. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice. Not just the voice of a man, but the voice of the Spirit. Father, there are people here with all kinds of questions, all kinds of wonderings. Do you even know I exist? God, are you real? And Father, this morning I pray that you would speak right into their hearts and may they hear things that only you and they know or could know and that, Lord, this would be a confirming word to people. So I pray that you would speak to us and help me to pastor your church this morning. Help me to love people this morning. Help me to reflect the shepherd arms of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about a picture that's painted in the last book of the Bible but the opening chapter of that last book and it's, it's uh, the, the candlestick and it's a, a picture that Christ presents as his closing revelation to his church and I want to point out something from this and I then want to challenge us on how we can apply this and so this is called being a candlestick church so to do that, there are seven churches that are identified in Revelation chapters 1, 2 and 3. Significantly, none of those churches are Jewish. They're all Gentile churches and they're located in the area today we would call Turkey. There were, by the time this is being delivered to the churches, which is around about 65 AD. I know some of you will have study Bibles that say Revelation was written in 95 AD, but that's just plain impossible, just absolutely impossible. This had to have been written, give or take months, but not years, 65 AD. So by the time this is written, 65 AD, when you consider that Christ was executed in 30 AD, so the next 35 years... There were hundreds and hundreds of churches planted across the empire in the first century, which is remarkable, quite possibly thousands of churches. This is, this is extraordinary. And, and of those churches that were, were planted across the Roman Empire, which in that day, there was a particular Greek word, um, which is translated in English as world, and to the Romans, that, that, the word oikumene, which uh, oikumene is translated in English as world, but it actually means the Mediterranean world, the Roman world. And so Paul could say in Colossians chapter 1, the last part of verse 5, first part of verse 6, I thank God that this gospel has now been preached in the whole world. 
And he goes down in verse 23 and he said, This gospel has now been preached to every creature under heaven. Now clearly that's not the Tasmanian Aboriginals or the American Indians or the Eskimos, but it was their world, their concept of the world. And it's quite remarkable that there were hundreds and hundreds, quite possibly thousands of churches planted across the Roman Empire within 35 years. Quite extraordinary. But at this time, one year before the Revelation is written, we have the greatest attack against the church the world has ever seen. And if you were Satan, if you were the enemy, and you were trying to defeat the redemptive purpose of God, it would be the easiest thing in the world to pull, pull in your mind, if you were Satan, a weed out of the ground when it's little, not when that sucker gets, gets a hold of it, of, of you know, fully being deep-rooted and all the rest of it. And so the enemy... Around 64 AD, moved on the, the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Emperor Caesar uh, Nero, to begin the, the most bloodiest attack against Christians ever in its history. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Christians were being slaughtered. Churches were being shut down forcibly by Roman guards coming in, carrying people out and having them publicly executed in the most humiliating way. This was a time where John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I am your brother in this tribulation. So this is a dark time. And you can, you can well imagine John the Apostle, the legend has it that they tried to kill him as well. And he got banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is just off the coast of Ephesus. And here he is. He's the last surviving apostle of the original 12. And he's now thinking, well, man, Jesus told us to take the gospel into the whole world and make disciples of nations, not just people. We failed him. And there he is on the island of Patmos, and he did what every one of us should do when our world falls apart. He worshipped. He worshipped. And in Revelation chapter 1, there he is, he's worshipping, and he says this in Revelation chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles open there, you might want to go there and put a thumb in there. You're going to need about three thumbs this morning, so put one in there. And he, he says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then he describes this, that then... He heard, sorry, yeah, he heard a voice. And then it says he turned to see the voice, which is remarkable. Because this John is the John that leant on the breast of Jesus. This is the John that in the Last Supper, it's not like, you know, um, pass the salt, um, Brother Thomas. It wasn't like that. It, was, it wasn't a nice dining table. It wasn't like Leonardo's Da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper. Excuse me, down the end there. Tomato sauce, please. It wasn't like that. They didn't have a table, and they, weren't, they certainly all weren't on the one side of it. They were lounging. And we have this picture where the food is on the floor, and there's John lounging on the breast of Jesus, looking up at his face, feeling the breath of Jesus, and probably hearing the pounding of his heart as he knew he was going to get up from here, walk down and just out of the city and go to a garden called the Garden of the Olive Press, known as Gethsemane. And there he would be taken and led to his death. So John's there. 
John gets it. John's there looking up at Jesus and Jesus says this, There is one of you here who is about to betray me. And Jesus was human. He was God in the flesh, but he was in the flesh. He would have had the natural physiological response of knowing that death was imminent. And the pounding of his heart through his body, the adrenaline. And John would have felt that. And John says in Aramaic, which is the language of little children, Yesu, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm about to give this cup to. And Jesus passes the cup to Judas. And John records that in his gospel. You get the picture? This guy, John, knew Jesus. He knew him. But on that day on the Isle of Patmos, he heard someone he'd never heard before. And he turned to see the voice. And he saw Jesus as he really was. Because when he was in the flesh, as the Christmas carol, and I don't know why we call it a Christmas carol, we should call it theology set to music. God in flesh, veiled. The Godhead veiled in flesh. And now he sees Jesus and he falls down as if dead, it says. And he's there. And Jesus, like often when Jesus appeared to people as he was, he had to say this, fear not. Which tells me something about Jesus. And here's John. The way he's feeling, we failed him. The church is going to kill us all. It's all going to be over. We won't even last a generation. How is this thing going to come through? And Jesus says, John, let me close your eyes so you can see something. And John sees Jesus in the midst of seven candlesticks. And these seven candlesticks, the seven churches in the trade route from Ephesus, you go up, you come across, and they're all in exactly the way you would walk to them. These seven churches of the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And of these seven churches, it's no accident that he starts off with one. And this one particular church, the first church that's mentioned, this one is set up by Christ not just because of Revelation, but all through the New Testament, and Revelation just capstones it as an example to all churches throughout all ages. It was the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. For your information, the church at Ephesus is the most written to church in the New Testament. It's the most written about church in the New Testament. It is set up for us to take notice of. So with one of your other thumbs, you might want to flick through to, well, you've got Revelation chapter 1 there. We'll come back to that. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples. All right, so he found some disciples. Now, this, this is a powerful depiction of how Christ plants churches. He uses people, but notice this, it started small. That's all I want you to see at this point. It started small. The church started small. Goes on, verse 2. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? So he's come across some disciples. We're told that there were about 12 men. Uh, when you believed. And they said to him, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul does something about this. And here's the second thing we are told about the most written to, most exemplary church in the New Testament. It was a church that was grounded in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. The Word and power. If all we have is Word, we're going to be dry and dusty. If all we have is Spirit, we're going to blow up. We need both. Word and Spirit. And he said to them, Into then what were you baptised? Now, these were Jewish men. They'd almost certainly experienced some kind of baptism. In fact, they tell him they had. They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the name, uh, in, in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. That's what John the Baptist did. Was that good enough for Paul? Not according to verse 5. There's a significance about baptism, Christian baptism. Being a believer, saying, I follow Christ, I will be baptised. It's not your parents' decision. It's not your grandparents' decision. It's not the pastor's decision. Although if I had my way, I'd dunk you all right now. But, you know, whatever. It's the believer's decision to be baptised and it says on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. But wait, there's more. Because it's, being a Christian is not just about being water baptised. Paul says, now let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune eternal God. He's uncreated. He's co-equal. Co-eternal. And Jesus when he was about to leave, said, it's for your benefit that I go because now I'm going to send him as a mysterious presence into each one of you, a person who is a person from eternity, which means if you can get your head around it, he can spend the entire lifetime of Tony Boyle from go to woe and do the same for each one of us without ever leaving Tony or without ever leaving you, because he's in a dimension called eternity. That's how he can be omnipresent as well. So Paul explains this to them, and he explains that, the, that he received the Holy Spirit after he was baptised, after he was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, after a guy by the name of Ananias came along, baptised him in water, and said, Paul, receive the Holy Spirit. And Paul was baptised in the Holy Spirit. Saved, water baptised, baptised in the Holy Spirit. Separate experiences. 
And so when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And that is the consistent experience of everyone who was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. No exceptions. So I'm going to just digress here for a moment and say if you have never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, please ask God to do it to you. Please ask God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we also notice about this church at Ephesus. It grew quickly and experienced much opposition. We get that in Acts 19, where it says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months, this is Paul, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what Christianity used to be called, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, arguably, probably, the first Bible college the church had established. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's Asia Minor. That's the, the, the region that we would call Turkey today. Both Jews and Greeks. And notice what was happening. Now notice what was happening in the midst of tremendous opposition. And this is an important point. When God is already breaking through, there is no need for extraordinary miracles. Now you may be praying for extraordinary miracles. That's fine. Go for it. As long as you know why God chooses consistently through the Bible to give extraordinary miracles. Because extraordinary miracles always come as an answer to intense, heated persecution. Who's in? No one jumped to their feet. You see, we want the glory and the good bits without the price to be paid. You see, this church was a church that was persecuted almost from the outset. And God's response was extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles. God was doing extraordinary miracles, it says in verse 11, by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles. By the way, we may, knew, we, we may soon need to pray for extraordinary miracles if society keeps going the way it's going, just by the way. So you may not choose to be in, you may just be put in. It's good preach. This is high octane. This is just awesome. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Can you imagine that? Here we are preaching. Here we are worshipping God and people just have demonic spirits leave them. Bring it on, I say. So here's what we see also about this church at Ephesus, as we go through the book of Acts, as we jump into the next chapter and we see, good grief, Paul was there two years. It didn't just mean people turning up every Sunday and he was preaching. As he was preaching, he was meeting not just on a Sunday, but meeting on a Monday and a Tuesday. He was discipling people. He was raising up leaders. And this church was a church that had a team of elders with an apostolic pastor, the Apostle Paul, in residence. So it was a team of leaders. These leaders were charged to help Care for people, guard people, pray for people. And it says in the next chapter, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. Miletus is on the coast. 
just off, just right on the coast. Ephesus is a bit inland. Miletus is right on the coast. And he sent to, the, to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So we, we see what's happened in this church, that it's got structure, it's got leadership. It's not just one man doing the deal. It's a, it's a team of leaders. Now, when Paul spoke to them at Miletus, this was on his way to Jerusalem, and we see an, an amazing thing happened. This, got, this weirdo turns up. His name's Agabus. He's a really weird guy. He turns up, and there's Paul, and Agabus comes into the room, and he says, can you imagine me doing this to Tony? Like, I say, don't, Tony, come up here. And I, don't, don't, because you don't want to do this, because your pants would fall down. I say, Tony, give us your leather belt. So off comes the belt. You know, there's Tony standing up there holding his britches. And there's Agabus, grabs the belt, and he bends down and he wraps that thing around him. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how they're going to take you, and from there you'll die. Thus says the Lord, have a nice day. And Paul has the elders there who hear this weirdo guy, Agabus, who popped onto the scene in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, with a very accurate prophecy, by the way. So they know this guy's got credibility. And the elders go... Paul, did you just hear what Agabus said? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I heard. Well, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says this. The Holy Spirit's already told me what Agabus said. This wasn't said for my benefit. This was said for your benefit. I'm putting into this. But Paul says, I'm prepared to go. I'm prepared to die. It's all cool. I want to be able to say that. Pray for me that I have that kind of courage, because I don't know that I do. But this was Paul's response. And then Paul warns them about certain things. So they, they, they've got, hang on, they, they, what? This guy's paying a price that I don't know any of us elders are prepared to pay. And Paul says, I am going. You will never see me again. This is the last time we will meet. This is their pastor two years in. And, and travelled and continued to do apostolic work and he's come, come back, hasn't gone into Ephesus because there's a whole bunch of people that wanted to kill him there. So he said to the Ephesian elders, travel the 20 miles, come to the coast, let's meet, then I'll head on to Jerusalem. And he said, now I'm warning you, this is what the Holy Spirit has told me is coming for your church at Ephesus. He warned them. And they heeded the warning. And we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease. I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And so after this, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We have it. It's, the, it's called the epistle to the... Anyone know? Ephesians. Thank you. Just wanted to see if you're tracking with me. The epistle to the Ephesians. And he says... This in verse, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Having told them all hell's about to break loose, he writes this epistle and in the opening chapter, he glorifies Christ. He says, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep looking to him. 
The church is not a side issue. The church is the main deal. Church on a Sunday, Ephesian elders, is the main deal. Doesn't matter who's playing at the local Coliseum. Make sure you're in church Sunday morning. I don't care if it's your favorite gladiator. Forget it. Come to church Sunday morning. Hallelujah. High octane right now, I reckon. It's high. So that through, and he goes on in chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold, manifold means many, many types of the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To him be glory in the what? Oh, man, I was high octane. You were like unleaded decaf petrol. Really? Let's try that again. I, I, this is how it works. I'm going to say to him be glory in the what? And you're going to say, you're going to yell at the church, right? So, to him be glory in the what? Yes. High octane, right there. All right, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God is glorified in the world today through the... Church, very good, through the church. So when we meet together, this is giving God glory. You being here on a Sunday is a vote for God's glory being manifested throughout the West Tamar. You being here on a Sunday is saying to the people around here, something's going on to the glory of God. So I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now this is not the last time the Ephesian church is written to. Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and really he's writing to the Ephesian church. He's writing to the Ephesian church. And so when Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, really what's he saying? He's saying, uh, Ephesian elders, stop beating up on my boy. Don't, don't do this to my boy. And so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, really written to the Ephesians. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, he writes to Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Right? This is what Paul warned them was about to happen. So we then see... That John, after Paul left, after Timothy left Ephesus, we know that Timothy went to Rome to be with Paul just before he was executed. John the Apostle goes to Ephesus. And when he writes 1 John, 2 John and 3 John, he's writing to the Ephesian church. So you can see how many times the Ephesian church is written to. I read from that this morning. And this is what he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. That is, love one another. So here's the next thing we see about this church at Ephesus. That Jesus Christ addressed in his letters to the seven churches. He addressed it first. Now this is where, if you've got your thumb in Revelation chapter 1, you'll see that as you go there, Christ is described as being in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And front and center of that is the church at Ephesus. So now come with me into chapter 2, verse 1. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So the angel, that word angel in Greek is angelos. Angelos means, well, it can mean messenger. And it can mean messenger in the sense of a human messenger. The apostles were called messengers. Uh, preachers are called messengers. Pastors are called messengers. And each of these churches would have had a messenger appointed by God. Today, we generally call them the pastor. So in, if, if it doesn't sound too bold, uh, in many respects, I'm the angelos appointed by Christ for this church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars, these are the churches in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Gold dedicated to God. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Wouldn't you love Jesus to say that about us? That would be awesome. But would we be mature enough to hear the next thing that comes out of Christ's mouth. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. The love you had at first. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's full discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select Being a Candlestick Church from our online store. As we've heard tonight, Christ's heart for the church was that it be founded on the Word and the Spirit, that it foster love for Christ and one another, and that it maintain its first love. The question is, do you belong to a candlestick church? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.